Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, hello. There are uh, three reasons why you're here. Um, The first one is either you're not a Browns fan, the second one is you trust them to win, or the third one is you're just really dedicated to Jesus. So I don't know where you're at in that, but you're here. So praise God. Uh, Thanks for sharing your story, Justin. We really appreciate that. Um, We've been doing that. We are getting close to, we've been doing that since we started uh, as a launch team, which is almost, it's been a little over a year now. Seems like with COVID, everything went really fast and really slow at the same time. But um, we've had almost almost everybody share their story. If anybody hasn't yet, let me know. Send me an email. We'd love to have you do that. And the reason why we do that is because, um, you know, when we, we first kind of had these divisions and in, in inception of contrast, one of the things that we wanted to create a culture of was that people have a story and that it matters. And um, we knew that it was really cool, even if people like t- or terrified of public speaking or or uh, maybe felt like there's a lot of people had said, my story doesn't like, it's not this crazy, like, it's not worth writing a movie on, it's nothing special. But we, we believe in it because God is working through every single person here, and we want to be able to showcase that to others. And so it's been really cool to do that, if you've been, if you've been able to see that. That's been some of our people's favorite things on, to see on Sunday. And, and also, one of the things I've realized is, wow, it helps me know everyone so much more. Like, to just be able to, to get a glimpse of your story, and not everybody has the luxury to sit down with every single person and do that. Um, and so, thanks for doing that. If you've done it, if you haven't, let me know, because I have a list, but um, there's several people who maybe have, have, uh, haven't been able to tell it yet. But um, I am going to, we're going to jump in to Matthew 7. Um, I, I want to jump right in, because I want to get into it. Um, normally, I have some sort of long story or introduction, but today we're just going straight into it. So, Matthew 7. And this is uh, the second to last passage in the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been going through this entire summer. Uh, If you've been with us at all, you know that we're going through Matthew for like a million weeks, and we have gone through every verse. And chapter 7, we're we're moving along, uh, but in two weeks we'll be be getting out of this sermon. This is kind of the last part of Jesus' longest section of teaching that we have in the Bible. And uh, I I love, love getting to go through it with you guys, and even just like I'm learning things left and right, I feel like every Sunday. And... It's, it's, it's a, such a powerful passage because I feel like if you just took these two, three chapters, five through seven, which is the Sermon on the Mount, if you took that section and you just really like dedicated yourself to, to living um, as if you believe it to be true, like I really think that it um, could do amazing things in your life and other people's lives. And so that's been really cool to go through the summer. We're, uh, we're starting in uh, verse seven, which is what we read uh, earlier in the service. Before we jump in, in verse 7, um, we're going to be talking about prayer today, and it's, we talked about prayer a few weeks ago when Jesus kind of gave the Lord's Prayer. We also talked about kind of a similar um, feel of passage a couple weeks ago about anxiety and doubt and worry, and um, one of the things that kind of plagues that passage, the anxiety, doubt, worry passage, was that we read it, and it just seems like Jesus is not actually understanding the narrative of our life. He just kind of, he kind of like throws this. Just here's the antidote for worry. It's yes, it is this simple, and we read it and we're like, yeah, but you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know like like my life and how many things I have going on and my upbringing. And it, it's very hard to reconcile that passage. It feels like Jesus is not actually understanding like your life and what you've been through. And 
And this passage, in the same way, can feel very similar about prayer. In fact, this passage has been um, misunderstood by a lot of people, and we read it, and we either sometimes misunderstand it, sometimes we read it, and we become discouraged because we feel like, just like the worry passage, that we, we like read it, and we believe that to be true, but then we don't necessarily see the results that we think we'd see from it. And uh, I think that, like the same thing in the last passage, we have to open our minds, so what is Jesus really getting at here? What is he really saying? And and at the end of the day, do we really trust it? Do we really believe in the words that it's said? And I mean, I read this, and I was like, I kind of had a similar feeling of, I almost don't even feel like, like, you know, I'm meeting with someone, you know, and they're struggling, or something hasn't been answered. Like, I almost feel bad being like, just says here to ask, and like, you'll receive. So just, you just need to ask. Like, it's, it seems too cheap, right? Too, it's not nuanced enough. And so I'm excited to dive in. Um, this passage, and so I want to read verse, start, just starting in verse 7, we're going to jump right in. It says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, a lot of times people read this, if we just stop right here, you kind of have this, these three words, ask, seek, knock, followed by three solutions to those three words. And a lot of people try to teach this, or they read it, and they think, like, oh, it's this progression. Like, I need to ask, and then asking will drive me to seeking, and seeking will drive me to knocking, and then there'll be this door, and like, that'll be the final result. And it's not necessarily what it's getting at. It's, it's really just, Jesus, when he does this, he uses common communicating strategies that were in first century um, Palestine, but also common strategies that we use now. If I was to give a TED Talk, and let's just say that I really wanted to drive home a powerful point I would maybe use not, not just one word to drive home something, but I'd use three synonyms just to like let you know that there is, there is great weight and power in what I'm telling you. So, for instance, if you like said something was magnificent, you would say, like, it's glorious, magnificent, amazing. All of those can be a little bit different, right, in their meanings. But when I put all three of them together, you're like, whoa, like, it's great. You know what I mean? You don't have to like parse through each specific word. You can tell that that it's, it's very valuable. And what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of allowing us, he's entering in to showing you how confident he is and believes this, this verse, this passage to be true. Because if he just had said, ask and it will be given to you, we might be able to say, oh, that's ambiguous. Or, oh, like, I don't know. He just says to ask, but what does ask really mean? But So then he says, ask, seek, knock. He's draw yourself in to uh, the Father in prayer. And so we read that and it realizes that not only is he telling us, like, we, like, this is super important, we need to do this, but the second verse, in verse 8, it says, it will be given, you will find, and it will be opened, which are, in my opinion, very confident wording. That would be like if I was saying, like, go buy a lottery ticket, and you will win a million dollars. Like, you would, you, you would buy the ticket, and if you don't win, you'd probably come back to me and be like, come on, Trey, you told me I will win a million dollars. Like, it was almost certain And so this is part of the rev when we read this passage is we read it and it seems very like it's going to happen, right? Like if I want that chair to fall over, I just ask God and it will happen, right? And you're like looking and you notice the chair didn't fall over. That would have been crazy if I would have had a prop or something and someone like pulled a string and it fell over. Could have just mic dropped and been done. Yeah, (laughs) there we go, Nathan. Thank you. But it's, it, if you read it, and, like, and, and you know, people, and a lot of times, some of us read the Bible, and we're like, we don't, we don't know. Like, we don't have all these commentaries. We don't have all this background knowledge. Maybe we're even reading the Bible in this passage for the first time, maybe only the second time. And we read it, and we're like, okay, well, this is what I'm reading. So like, how do I reconcile this? And 
this is the part of, I think, this sermon that we realize what is the context of everything that's going on. This is why we, when, you know, when we talk about reading scriptures, that we, we, it's really important to have the context even in the passage. And so if I was to give you a sermon like I do um, most Sundays, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. If I was to give you the sermon, typically what will happen is I'll do an intro. I'll draw you in, right? And so what does Jesus do? He gives us what we call the Beatitudes, which is basically like, you're in the kingdom, and you're in the kingdom, and you're in the kingdom, right? Like he draws all these people that are listening to him on this hilltop that, that would think they had no honor or right to be able to be in the kingdom because they were not socially, economically, the people who anyone in the world would think would be in the kingdom of God. And he's like, you're in, you're in, you're in. He draws all these people in, and then when they, when they get the, they, they feel the, the intro, right? Like, oh, I'm, I'm in now. Like, I'm just like sitting here listening, right? Then he draws them into the content, like what is the kingdom? What does it look like? How does it live in the world? What does its followers look like? And he talks about being light and salt. He talks about being, you know, this light on a hill and and, and salt that preserves decaying and adds flavor to the world and and all these type of things, right? And then he gives you, and then when you're more excited and you're kind of starting to grapple with it in your hands, he's starting to, to create this dichotomy of your kingdom and his kingdom. And you start to realize that the two will not merge, that you have to be willing to step into his kingdom fully. You can't play this on the fence game. And then you start to discover and you're excited and you're like, man, this is amazing. This is awesome. And these things are really hard that he, that he asks us to do, right? We went through like anger and not only can you not murder, but you shouldn't be angry towards a brother. Not only should you not commit adultery, you shouldn't even lust after a woman or a man or something or someone. And, 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 it, and then you start to feel, oh my gosh, like this was really exciting, but now I'm overwhelmed. I, there's no way that I can do this. And then Jesus says, be perfect. Like my father's perfect. And you're like, all right, this is ridiculous. And then he gets to these other beautiful pieces that we see, like, like loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you and all these type of things. And, and you're sitting here listening to all of this. And what Jesus is doing, and this is the last chapter, this is kind of the conclusion, is he, is, he, is, he knows what will happen in your heart, mind, and soul when you listen to all of this and the temptations that will plague you once he leaves, once he's done with the sermon, once we leave. It would be as if I told you something and I hammered it, I hammered it, I hammered it for 20 minutes, and then I realized at the last minute that I need to make sure that you didn't jump, you know, the other end and, um, you know, and do something that I didn't want you to do. And so this is kind of what Jesus is doing here. And in this one, he's specifically talking about prayer because what Jesus is revealing, what he will reveal over the next 12, 13 chapters, is that this Sermon on the Mount applies to relationship with the Father and being in his kingdom. And that, that the things that he says ultimately need to be rooted first in relationship with the Father. And what can happen is we, we, we listen to all these things and we start to realize, this is, this is super hard, this is insane, and I don't even know if I can live in this kingdom. And then he says, not only are you able to be in this kingdom, but you have a king, a father, who will actually listen to what you need and he will actually care for you. Because the, the temptation when these people would leave is, well, that's all great and dandy, but I still can't do that either. Like, I don't, I'm not capable and it sounds great, but there's, there's no way that I am good enough to be a part of this, to actually make this kingdom come to life in people's lives. And so Jesus is fighting that temptation. And so uh, he's encouraging us here with this passage because what he's reminding them is, even throughout the last two chapters, is, look, this God the Father, who's my, he says, well, my Father cares deeply about you, cares about intimacy and relationship with you. And all of these things that I just talked about are full range in the kingdom with him. And you just have to ask. You just have to seek. You just have to knock. In fact, um, the NLT, I don't know if it's a different translation. We use the net. But if you have the NLT, this is kind of nerdy. But 
Um, they actually translate this really accurately. And uh, in, in their, their translation in verse 7, it says, keep on asking and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. It actually, like, you can kind of read it and feel like, oh, this is, this is the posture of my heart continually. This isn't like I just see something I want and I ask for, I get it. This is this pursuit. It's this relationship that, that Jesus is, is kind of pushing the people listening into with his Father. So when, when we boil this down, though, I think like where I wrestle with this and where we get the question is, is what, is, what does Jesus actually mean when he says, ask, seek, knock? What does he actually mean? Because some of us would say, well, um, he means like ask for his things, right? Because he just told us, pray for the Father's will to be done, right? So he's telling us, just ask for what the Father wants, and the Father will give it to you, but it's what the Father wants. And some people say that. Or some people say, have you ever heard of like name it and claim it? Like you name it, God will give it to you, right? Like blank check, he'll write down, like you want it, write it down, and he'll give it to you, right? Now I don't know about you, but I, that has not worked in my life. Um, maybe you have instances where you've prayed for something that didn't happen, um, in fact, I even know of a famous guy by the name of Jesus that prays in the garden that the Father would take the cup from him, and he didn't do that. So I don't think that we can just say, name it and claim it, right? Ask it, and you'll get it. So it's not that simple. Then what does it mean? And for a while in my faith, I started to think, I kind of bought into this like weird thinking that, well, I'm probably just not asking like in a Christian way, right? I'm asking selfishly. I'm asking for things that that clearly God doesn't want. And so then what happens is your prayer life, instead of turns into this like fun, organic, natural relationship with the Father, you still are going in feeling like you have to be a certain way before him, which is another antithesis of what Jesus is trying to say. And, and so then he gets into this illustration, and this is, this is kind of what helps us understand this passage. The next verse, in verse 9 he says, is there anyone among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, th- this is what I think really gives the nuance for the two verses prior, is that that Jesus is, is drawing everyone in. Remember, he's, he's reminding them, here's the things that you're going to have a natural bent to when we're done with this. And most of these people listening, right, are probably fathers or mothers. It's very, I mean, that was like the culture, right? It was your identity. It was your legacy. That was what life was for, was legacy. And so any of them would know, like naturally, oh yeah, like I love my son. I love my daughter. Like I would provide for them. If they asked me for food, I would give that to them. In fact, uh, what's funny is some translations would say that the fish was probably an eel, which would look like a snake. And so what he's saying is you would not give something like a counterfeit thing that they need, right? Like a rock looks like a loaf of bread, a snake looks kind of like an eel or a fish that would be common in Sea of Galilee where they were at. And so you're not going to give them this counterfeit gift, right? And that's the same way that I think sometimes, like I said, it's plagued me where I'll ask God for things and I'm praying for the fish and I, sometimes I believe that all I deserve is the snake. Like, I don't really deserve the fish, or God clearly doesn't want to give me the fish. And, and so he gives us this, like, really just simple illustration. Now, the problem with this illustration is that many of us have not had great parents. And we read this, and we're like, well, my father was the worst, or my father wasn't around, or he was abusive, or my mother, like, my parents weren't great. They, 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 they were just, like, not good. And so you read this, and it's supposed to feel like a breath of fresh air, right? Like, you're supposed to be reminded of your parents and how much they cared for you and how, 
They bought you that thing that you really didn't need, but you begged them and begged them, you know. Or even, like, I think of, like, um, uh, Ralphie on the Christmas story, you know. It's like, dad classic hides the gun behind the couch, you know, and shoots his eye out classic, right? Which is actually a very good illustration. I just thought of that, because he does shoot his eye out even though the dad gave it to him. But regardless, um, great movie, getting ready for it. Um, be here before you know it. And, uh, and, but in that, it's like what, you know, he's giving us such a simple illustration that clearly fathers and mothers love their children, even if they're struggling, even if they are addicted or they're promiscuous or um, they're lazy or whatever, like it's still, it's the, the baseline they can do is at least want to provide for their children. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to do it great. It doesn't mean that they're going to buy them a flame and yawn. But like at this base level, we can assume that even if the most evil people listening to the crowd, which is who Jesus is talking to, even if the most evil people and selfish people in that crowd still feed their children when they ask, he says, how much more love does the Father have for you and the things that you ask for? And so when we read that, what we have to start is, is the Father is truly a Father to us. I was reading this book several months ago by John Eldridge. It's called Fathered by God, and the whole book is like how God fathers men in, in relationship with them. And it was like this really beautiful story. John Eldridge is very like creative and poetic, and but very like um, it was just a very good book. But the the idea of it was so beautiful to me because we call God the Father, the Father, but we don't like. I don't always think of Him like my Father, and my only depiction I have of Father is my own earthly Father, right? And no earthly father is perfect, right? So we find, we, we try to compare your earthly father to God the Father, and, and to be honest, you can't even come close. You can't even come close. But in the smallest ways, we see in the ways that our, our parents have tried to provide for us if we had healthy relationships with them. Um, but, but Jesus is doing this because he's trying to draw us into understanding the role of the Father. And in this point, think about all the baggage that all these people had about God, Right? Well, if I sin, I need to atone for it. I need to go to this temple. God's going to be mad at me. The Pharisees are mad at me, and they're on my back about it. And I need to go do this, and I'm guilty. And, and there's all this shame and guilt. And, like, I can only enter the presence of God if I'm perfect, right? I have to have a sacrifice. I have, it has to be the right time of year. It has to be done with all these different practices, right? This is the Old Testament. And it's very easy to feel like, wow, God the Father does not actually want to be in a relationship with me. It's almost like he's obligated, and he has to, and he doesn't really want to be there would almost be like if you were um, trying to meet with your, your own father, let's just say you had a good relationship with him, and you wanted to meet with him, and he's like, okay, well, I can pencil you in in three weeks for about eight minutes, but I'm probably going to be on the phone texting while you're talking to me, and you also need to wear this outfit, and you also have to bring me a gift. You probably wouldn't feel like your father's really there for you, right? It would not feel very relational. It would feel very transactional. It would feel like you had to achieve and work and, 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 and just strive to be something, to be even in the presence of your Father. And what Jesus is doing is he is just demolishing that idea. And he's saying, look, God the Father loves and cares for you so much that even in your asking and your seeking and your, your finding, he will listen and he will give you what you ask. And, and so when we read that, we have to believe that first, this idea that God actually is a Father who loves us and who doesn't just do it out of duty, but he does it out of delight. And there's a very big difference, Right? There's sometimes where I could tell my dad was just, he had to be a dad. Like, he had to do this thing for me, right? He had to wake up at 6 a.m. and take me to, like, golf where I would just, you know, I was a little kid. I remember this, like, we would go, like, one day a week to this golf thing with a bunch of kids. 
and it was just like, it was, I mean, it's fun, but like, I was like five or six. Like, I was, I didn't, we didn't even do anything really. We just had fun and ate snacks, right? But, you know, he'd get up in the morning, and he'd take me when he could, and, and you think about, there's tons of things my dad would do like that. Where I, but I could tell, yeah, I think he's just doing this because, like, you know, he kind of has to. But there's a very big difference if he does it, and he delights in it, and he has joy in it. And that is the Father every single time. There's never a feeling of duty in what God is doing because he knows deep down that delight is, 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 his, is his creation. And I, I know this because if you turn the whole way back in your Bible, if you've got a physical Bible, it's always fun, go the whole way back to the first two pages of the Bible uh, in Genesis 3. This story is incredibly powerful. Most people miss it. Genesis 3, what happens, the saddest part of the Bible at the beginning, right? Things look great, doesn't go so well, right? They try to eat the fruit, Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, and they choose to be gods over God. They choose to play God. To be, they, build, they, buy, they basically buy into an idol because they think that will give them what they truly need, right? And shortly after that, God comes down, and they're hiding, right? They've covered themselves up um, with some, some fig leaves. This is what we always do, right? Like two fig leaves here, two fig leaves here. It's great. Um, and, then, and, and then this curse happens, right? And curse in the Old Testament, curse and blessing just mean with God, without God. It's not this like voodoo witch casting spell. It's not like that, like we see in Harry Potter. It is much different. It just basically means God is not with you. And so if you're cursed, that's kind of what that means. And so anyways, this, cur- this, this curse comes upon them. He reveals them the curse that they have stepped into by deciding they think they know God better, to, to be God better than him. And so he gets done with this curse. You can kind of see it in your, your Bible. It probably like looks like a kind of a, po- like a poem, like it's shorter lines. And basically he says, hey guys, sorry, but it's just not going to be the same anymore because you literally want to be me, and that's not going to fly, right? And you've chosen to be Lord over me, and you're going to have to be in your own place now, right? And he casts him out of the garden. But what does he do in verse 21, the unimaginable that we always forget after they have just created the greatest offense ever? Verse 21, the Lord God made garments from skin for Adam and, Eve, Adam and his wife and clothed them. We, we really just read over that, don't we? We forget that in the midst of the most probably depressing tragedy, for, I mean, I, if I was God, I'd be really bummed, right? This didn't take very long, and they already said, I don't like you or your stuff. I want my own stuff. And even in the midst of that, right, we see this father who runs to them and provides for them. Now, there's still consequences, right? But the fact that he clothes them shows there's this relational aspect of God that truly wants to be among us and with us. And Jesus, if anything, is just directing everyone to, to him, right? That was his goal on earth, was letting them see God as a person, as a man, and, and finding love through Jesus. But Jesus is one with the Father, and there's that beautiful relationship. And so I think this kind of lies the problem, is that, that we don't really believe at first that, that God is actually a Father who wants to give us what we ask for. We don't believe that. And maybe we haven't seen it, so we feel frustrated, Right? And that's where I think the nuance in this comes to fruition is what does it actually mean to ask, seek, and knock? Because if we know what that means, then maybe we'll know what we'll get. Because otherwise, we don't know. And I actually think it's the same answer as two weeks ago, which we also don't like, when it talks about anxiety and worry and doubt. And that is seeking first him and his kingdom. So seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things, the, the things we worry about, the worries of the world, will be given to us and, and when we read that, it's like I said, it sounds super easy, very hard in practice. A lot of distractions in the world to keep us from doing that. But in the same way, 
This is what Jesus is getting at, is that when we seek God in his kingdom, that we find truly this Father who wants to give us the things of our hearts. And, and I know that this is still, like, it still feels like, okay, well, can I ask for the new car, or do I only need to ask that my friend finds Jesus? Like, what am I asking for, Trey? And I'll give you a good illustration. Um, I am a father, and I feel like uh, I've learned a lot through that uh, in so many ways. And, and a lot of this fathering, like God is father and loving his children, has been really felt real to me having a child now. Because before we had Junia, I was like, I don't like kids. I think they are like, whatever. I'll see them in 15 years. Like, because I was a youth pastor, I love students. But wow, I did not want to be in the kids' ministry. And I say that because... I just didn't get it, right? Like, I just didn't have this love for kids like I do now. And, like, getting to love Junia has been, has been amazing. Um, but Junia already has an obsession. And that obsession is uh, these little tiny sugary bars called Z-bars, specifically the oat, uh, iced oatmeal cookie bar. Now, I'm a grown man, and I've had one, and they are dangerous, and uh, she could, if you could, you gave her one, she could probably eat six a day, maybe more. She's always pointing over to where she knows they are. And Sarah and I have developed a rule, like, one a day, unless we're, like, I don't know, in a car, and she's freaking out. We're like, we just got to get her to just chill for, like, ten minutes. So one a day, right? And, and I'm using this illustration because, you know, she doesn't know any better necessarily, right? Like, she just loves this thing. It tastes great, has a nice sugar high to it, Right? And she just likes it, right? Her, like, it's not like her thoughts are totally off base or naive or what, what do we expect from a child who's that young, right? Now, as the role of her father, okay, what I want more than anything is relationship with her, right? And so right now, the relationship is very much one-sided. I make the decisions, she has to deal with it. And sometimes I still succumb, but I make the decisions, she has to deal with it. So I say, okay, Junie, like, you're going to get one bar a day. I don't, I could say it. She probably is like, what does that mean? But... But so she knows after a while, wow, when I point there and I've already had one, like, I'm going to cry because I want more, and Dad's going to say no. Now, in that moment, she's asking, knocking, seeking for something that I can give her. Now, if we read the passage from plain view, we just say, well, Trey, sorry, just got to give her any Z-bar she wants, like anytime she wants it, right? But when we look at this relationship he's using of, of a father providing what their, what their child needs, He's giving us this beautiful understanding of, oh, I'm a dad, and I actually kind of know how that goes now. Like, my child is asking for things, then they don't necessarily know the weight of it and the consequences and all these type of things. And my heart is still fully for her, even when I say no. And that is the piece that we hate about this passage, is that we read it, and God says maybe no, or different, or maybe, or whatever, and we get mad. And the root of that madness, that anger, is that we don't really trust that God has our best interests at hand and that he really loves and delights in, in us asking. And sometimes, you know, we have an objective thing where we're like, this is so obvious. Like, why would God not want this to happen? Like, you pray for your friend to come to Jesus or just to come to church or, I don't know, have a better marriage. You're like, who would not want this? God clearly wants this. It says in his Bible, he delights in healthy marriages. Like, what are we doing here, God? Are you just, are you playing absent? And, and it's these, these little lies that we believe. This like, we think we know God, just like Adam and Eve. And even at the end of the day, they take the apple, and what does he still have to do? He still clothes them. And in the same way as a father, like, I could just give her a Z-bar every time she asks. And would that make me a good dad? I don't know. I'd probably get to the point of malnutrition or maybe even some serious health, health complications. There's a lot of sugar in those. 
Kids' food is deceptive. It has just as much sugar as adult food, in case you're wondering. But, but the point that, that gets to this, and this is why I use this illustration, is some parents might disagree. They might be like, you know what? We can give our kid four bars a day. Or, or you have some parents who are like, we don't have sugar in our house. And I'm like, good for you. Way to go. You know, we were suckers. I don't know. But there's, there's so many different opinions on what does it mean to be a good dad in that moment. Does, do you give them the Z-bar? Do you limit it? Do you not give them that at all? Do you, are you worried about things? Right? Do, you, do I have baggage? For instance, um, I, wasn't allowed one, I wasn't allowed sugar after dinner before bedtime. So do I follow the same rule because I, I experienced that as a child? Or maybe I, have, I didn't have an absent father, and so I'm much more vigilant about these type of things because I feel like I want to be in control because my dad wasn't. And you see how all these things affect whether or not we believe something to be good or bad, and in the same way, we believe whether or not God is good or bad based on all these different circumstances and things in our life. And so when we read this, there's so much in it that we don't realize. And so the most beautiful analogy that, that I can give in this story is when, let's just say Junie is a teenager, she's older. Well, let's just say, I don't know, she makes a dumb teenage ask. I don't know, you can fill any of them with your, in your head. Like, Dad, I want to go to this party at 11 p.m. Like, is that a good idea? I want to go, you know? And you probably know the answer. No, probably not, right? It's 11 p.m., and you're like 16 or 17, and you've been driving for like a week, and you're going to go to this party that I don't know where the location is, and I'm just going to trust that you're okay and doing good things. Like, right, I have all that in, in the back of my head. But at the end of the day, the relationship and the strength of it is not based upon me saying yes or no. It's based upon her and her response, so let me, give, let me give you an example. She asked me. I say, sure, yeah, great. And she's like, awesome, amazing, yeah. Bad choice. Bad things happen. It was a bad decision. I didn't have any wisdom. Okay, that's one option. The other option is I say no. And what can happen there is she can be so mad and not trust me and trust my heart for her that she will throw a fit. And she'll be like, how dare you? So-and-so does this, and, and I, I deserve this, and I, I never have any reason for you not to trust me, and whatever, right? She can throw all this blame, and at the end of it, she's throwing that fit because she doesn't trust that my heart is fully trusting and, and relying like on God and loving and parenting her. So the good of this, here's the good situation, is I say no, and she responds, and she says, you know what, that's a huge bummer, but like I get it, I, I trust you. That's, that's like the ideal response, even though she's probably bummed, right, because she wanted to do that. But why is that the ideal response? Because she trusts in the relationship that we have, and she knows that my heart is fully for hers and what's best for her. And it's the same way with God when we pray. Do we really believe that when he says no or maybe or maybe a different time or later, ask me later or whatever, that we actually believe that he has our best interest in mind, that he actually cares for us, and he probably knows way more about the situation than we do, which he does for sure. And so the question is, what is our response going to be, and why is it that way? And that's what this passage is getting at. It's getting all about relationship. What does your relationship with the Father look like? And all these Jews listening, and, and unclean, even unclean people listening to this sermon, had had a, f- a father who they had thought, man, i got to have my act together to be around him. Man, he doesn't care what I think. Like, there's no way he would. And, and we still live that lie today. And, and so at the end of this, it's all about relationship, but it's, it's asking ourselves the question that is, do we really believe that God is, is delighted in me asking in that relationship and do we believe that he has my best interest in mind? And so it's less about the, the, the ask and the product, and it's more about the relationship in the midst of that. And so I think Jesus here is, he's, 
he's letting you know that the kingdom is capable and willing to answer your request. There's no doubt about that. He's not saying sometimes God will answer or even hear you. He, he will hear you, but there's a reality of seeking his kingdom first, taking uh, a day at work with him and, and seeing what breaks his heart and understanding the heart of the Father. And your prayers start to align with that of the Father's and you start to realize this, this trust that you have in him. It's the same thing with worry and anxiety is worry is just believing that God really doesn't have things panned out for us in the way that we think we need to. This is the same exact way. We do it in prayer too. We don't believe God actually cares that he'll actually do what we think we want him to do. And so, I mean, the big idea that like one sentence, you were just to, just to put it all together, Jesus is revealing here in this that, to us that the God the Father, who he's showcasing, wants us to be in relationship with him and to ask for him to provide for us in prayer. But there's three pieces of that that, we, that I just kind of went through, or four, that we have to. These are like your little fun bullet points if you like taking notes. The first one is that we, we must ask, and that's the beginning of the passage. Ask, seek, knock. You gotta, like, if you don't do any of those, what do you expect? In fact, James uh, 4.2 literally just says, you do not have because you do not ask. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Like, some of you just don't think God's gonna answer it, so you don't even pray. Well, that's wrong. You gotta ask. The second one is, we have to believe, we must believe that God is actually a father who loves us better than anyone uh, we know that provides for us. It's that we believe he wants to provide for us. The third one is we must seek, seek first his kingdom, and I'm pulling that from Matthew 6, that we actually know if we seek after him and his heart and our relationship, that I think asking, seeking, and, and opening, or, and, and knocking on the door will be so much easier and more organic because we know the heart of the father. If Junia knew that I loved a certain sport, and she was a teenager, and she was like, hey, Dad, like, I want to go do this thing that I know you'll love. Will you want to go? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. And I feel loved and appreciated that she knew that and that she cared enough to ask. And in the same way, if we don't know anything about God the Father and Him and what He values and what His heart breaks for, how do we expect to, to, to grow that relationship to where we're actually on the same page? And the last one is just the simple, like, ending. is We, just, we must prioritize our relationship with our Father. And that's, I think, what this gets at is, after the end of this sermon, Jesus is reminding us that this Father desperately wants to be in relationship with you, that there's no thing that will separate you from being in front of him, that you are covered by the blood of Jesus. And um, as I invite the band up to play one more song, that's our reminder as we take uh, communion or the Lord's Supper. And so we, we offer this every Sunday. If you believe in Jesus, this is an opportunity for you to do that. There's some cups in the back. You can grab one. Um, and we do this, and, and today this is the reminder that Jesus has paid the price for the invitation for us to be able to be in relationship with the Father and, and be able to not have to fix ourselves up, put ourselves together, but that he's here uh, now knowing and, and loving us regardless of what we've done or, or will do. And so that's what we take this for. We remind ourselves of the sacrifice of Jesus. Also, if, um, if you'd like prayer, we have people in the back that are always willing to pray for you. Uh, we're going to sing one more song. They're going to they're gonna play for a little bit while if you want to take this. And then we will uh, close with one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.